Do you believe? Uh, do you believe in love at first sight? It it happens for some, and it did for Carol. <laughs> and that's what began our love story. Our love story, as rich as it is, though, I don't I don't know that it compares with. This is like the quintessential love story. This Ruth and Boaz, but. I, I want to explain it at two levels. The first level is just a human level, right? This is what we see. This is how we understand this Ruth and Boaz relationship developing. But then I want to look at it from a vertical perspective, because ultimately, as, as Edgar has just correctly prayed, that, that Boaz is really a picture of God to us, this glorious picture of God, and, and how we're going to see Boaz exercise such kindness to to Ruth, we're going to see God exercise such kindness to us. You know, remember where we are in chapter 2. We've just come where Naomi has left Moab because she heard that God had lifted the famine. And so uh, Naomi, the Jewish widow, is traveling back to Bethlehem. With her is, of course, Ruth, the uh, Moabite widow. This is quite an odd couple here coming back, and they're coming back with nothing. They have no money. They have no possessions. They have no real hope for the future from an earthly perspective. And and we saw Naomi last week struggling. I mean, she's a woman of faith. We saw that. She believes in the sovereignty of God. There's no doubt. But you see her struggling with seeing the sovereign goodness of God in the midst of losing a husband and two sons. So she has deeply, deeply struggled. I don't think she was grumbling. She was groaning. But, but that was beginning to move toward a bitterness. And these were dark times, so let's remember that. The one bright spot was, was Ruth. Do you remember Ruth in verse 16 and 17? Talking about, I will not leave you. Your people are my people. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. Your God is my God. She's giving this affirmation of faith in the God of Abraham. That's what Ruth is committing. She's leaving everything behind and going to this God by going with Naomi to Bethlehem. So, so we started out chapter 1 kind of in darkness, a famine, and we end chapter 1 with the beginning of what's going to be a harvest. So I want to look at this from a human perspective and a divine perspective. And Aaron's going to read chapter 2 for us. And if you would follow along with her in your Bibles, uh, it would make uh, much more sense. Thank you, Aaron. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. 
Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, and do not go to glean in, the, in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thank you. Thank you. So let's just look at the man and the woman here, kind of the Ruth and the Boaz. Now, now you see in verse 1, now Naomi had a relative, this uh, worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The, the story writer is just letting, he's introducing a new character to the story. He's not going to explain it. He wants to hold the tension. We're going to get to Boaz later, but he's just introducing him. That's why you see it here. And then in verse 2, she goes right to Ruth the Moabite. Now, Remember, the story in chapter 1 kind of focused on Naomi, and we saw the bitterness of Naomi. Chapter 2 is going to look more at Ruth and the beauty of Ruth. Ruth is beautiful in character, not an external beauty per se. We don't know that. But, but we, we do know the character of Ruth is, is one of beauty. And you see this in her, in her humility, in her diligence, in, in her perseverance in working and ultimately in her faith. You see it in her humility. You, know, you notice that she asks Naomi to go into the field to work. They need food. She defers to her as an older woman. She asks her. She even asks the foreman of Boaz's field if she can glean in the field. There's a degree of humility there. There's not an assumption per se. There's not an expectation. But you also see her diligence in going out, serving Naomi. We don't know why Naomi didn't go in the field. Perhaps she was too old. Perhaps she was too infirm. Perhaps the bitterness had worked 
its way into her soul such that she was feeling in despair, and despair leads off into inaction. But we see that Ruth was diligent in working, this, this gleaning idea. Let me explain what that is, because most of us don't know. We haven't been farmers. But this gleaning was a provision of God because he's kind to the broken and the weak. And what would happen would be, uh, in Deuteronomy, the farmer is instructed to go through his field one time to clear the grain, but not to go through a second time. Now listen, when men are going through, they're trying to get their work done quick, they're going to miss grain. And so they were not to go back a second time through so as to empty the field of its harvest. And they weren't to, to harvest the corners of the property. This grain that was remaining after the first harvest and the corners was really, was really the grace of God given to those who would be hungry the widow, the poor, even the foreigner. In fact, in Deuteronomy we read, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So, so this is, she's diligently working, gleaning, hand to hand, kind of your harvesting. But we see her not just humble, and we don't see her just diligent and hardworking, but we even see her as faithful. Notice in verse 2, when she says, let me go to the field and glean after the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. This is kind of a prayer, really, because the word favor means kindness. It's a, it's a great Hebrew word, which we do not have an exact English equivalent for, but it's this loving kindness. It's a very heavy word in terms of covenant loyalty. She's asking God, God, be kind to me that I may find a man whose field I can glean in. Now, why would she ask this? Well, she's a foreign woman. She's a Moabite. When you think Moabite, you think enemy of Israel. And here she is in a field. A lot of farmers were not the, the fairest of men. They were greedy. They'd send their workers through twice. You know, they planted the crops. They want, all the, they want all the grain. They don't want any women in their fields, particularly a foreign woman, particularly a Moabite woman. And so she's really appealing to God. She's going out with a tremendous amount of courage, to, to glean in this field knowing that, and we've seen it over and over in chapter 2 and chapter 1, the opportunity of being assaulted in the field, being rebuked, being reproved. I mean, being assaulted in terms of just working in a field. It, it's hard for us to get our mind around the nature of this time. But she's walking in great faith. But we see Boaz really give word to her faith as you see that passage when he says, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought refuge. It's a picture of, of Ruth. She's coming under the wings of God. She's finding her shelter in God. Her faith is not a presumptuous faith. She's not thinking, hey, I get a handout, or I'm entitled, I lost my husband, I'm entitled for you to care for. She's working the field. Her faith is not perhaps sophisticated, but it's solid. It's solid as she, as she moves out in faith. In fact, I wonder if Peter, I wonder if Peter was speaking about her when he wrote these words in his first letter. He said, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. I wonder if she was in his mind along with other holy women of old. So here Ruth is kind of for us an example to follow. Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian here, when you look at the woman's faith like this, it, it 
it's in contrast to the way we look at faith today. I think the landscape of the world today, faith is seen more inward. It's more drive down deep to find the resources that you have, to live in a manner that might honor God. I don't think you see that picture of faith here. Faith is not inward. Faith is actually outward. It's coming under the wings of God. It's, it's placing your faith in God and not digging down deep within. You see Jesus, in fact, in Luke 13, used the same language regarding this idea of coming under wings. Jesus says, How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You were not willing. What Jesus is saying is, Jesus has come as the Messiah to declare himself as the king through whom we find salvation, that our faith is to be rooted in Christ, and and that we would be, as it were, coming under his wings, but we were not willing. This is how a person moves from a non-Christian position to a Christian position. It's by humbling ourselves, coming under the wings, placing our faith in God. You know, Peter says that we are called to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, that he will lift us up. So the step to becoming a Christian is first through humility, recognizing we do not have it within to find reconciliation with God. We do not have the power within to somehow reform our life in such a manner that God might say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we have to shelter under his wing. We have to come to faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ. But for the, but for the Christian here, when you, when you look at this story, um, you see the character of Ruth, and it's impressive. I mean, if you read through it a few times, you'll get a greater feeling of her character. And I want you to see that what forged this character was her faith. In other words, it was coming under his wings. It was placing her faith in God, understanding that over all things stands God for our good. It's that faith which gives birth to character. Many of us, I think, we come to faith in Christ and then we get to work on our character. You have to understand the relationship that character is forged by faith. So the trust in the goodness and the power of God, her, her knowledge of God's greatness and goodness in protecting her is what enabled her to go out into a very dangerous situation to glean. So I want you to see that relationship, that it's faith in the goodness of God coming under his wings, which gives birth to character. So if someone... If you were to ask someone, what do you observe about my character? I mean, I encourage you to, say, to ask someone close to you, a friend, a spouse, what do you see about my faith? What do you observe in me? I mean, do you see me fighting for faith in the midst of trouble? I mean, do you see me walking with courage based upon my faith? Do you see me walking in holiness because of my love for God? I mean, get feedback, folks. It's very, very hard when we study a person's character like this. It's very hard to assess our own character. We always tend to want to give ourselves kind of graded on the curve. So ask someone, involve someone in your life. So this is kind of a picture of Ruth, a woman of sterling character. Okay, let's meet the boy. Okay, in verse 4, the scene kind of shifts to Boaz as he's coming from Bethlehem. Now, what we've seen about Boaz is he's a worthy man. That word worthy means wealthy. It can mean in financial terms, or it might mean in character. He was a man of character. But we also see that he's a man of God. And the reason I put the um, 
Evidence for that would be how he greets his people. What does he say? He comes into the field and he says, may God's presence be with you. I mean, you kind of see that his life is shot through with God. He's bringing it to the marketplace. He's bringing it to the everyday part of his life. And he's saying, may God be with you. And they respond, the Lord be with you. You can kind of get the impression that these men have a respect, a dignity for him. I mean, if... If that's not the point, why would the storyteller tell us about how he greets his men? Remember, the storyteller is trying to create in our minds a good understanding over this character, Boaz. But we know he's godly because, look, Ruth is gleaning in his field. Remember this, when she prayed, let me find a man in whom I might find favor. What she's looking for is a godly man, a man who would fear God and honor him by letting people glean of his crops. And so Boaz is letting her glean. Now he goes and, of course, he comes to his foreman. That's what you see in verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7. And the foreman's kind of explaining to Boaz, this is what's happened. She came to me, she asked to glean in the field. And then Boaz, hearing the story, immediately moves to Ruth. Immediately moves to her. And he calls her daughter. That's significant. Again, you're thinking Moabite, you're thinking enemy, and yet he expresses this greeting with such compassion and kindness. It probably had to do with he was a bit older than her, but I think there was more involved than just that. And what he does is he moves with kindness. Remember, kindness is a heavy word, and this idea of kindness is seen in his protection of her. Right? He protected her. He said, don't leave this field. Follow the women in the field. We've already known about the difficulty and the danger of the field, but, but don't leave this. He's protecting her. He, he's setting up for her a place of safety. He's honoring her. He's valuing her. He's protecting her. But not just that, he's providing for her. He's saying, listen, drink from the well, the water that the men have drawn. Now, there weren't wells in every field. The wa- water had to be, water's heavy, had to be dragged all the way to where the field is. Most people had to walk all the way. The gleaners, those kind of just scraping on the side of the field, they weren't entitled to the water. They're not getting paid for it. They're getting free meal. They had to go, but not her, drink from their water. But he also provides for her. Did you notice that at the end of the day, at the mealtime, he invites her to sit with him at his table. And he serves her. It's tremendous. He's the owner of the field. And he is serving her. By dipping it in the wine, that's to soften the bread and to give it more flavor, he's serving her, and then he makes sure that she not only has enough, but too much that she can even take it back with her. He continues to provide for her. He instructs his men to let her work among them. In other words, she's not having to try to sort through the scraps. She's not trash, you know, kind of dumpster eating here. She's not trying to fight through the scraps. She's in the harvest And not only that, but he's telling men, hey, pull out some sheaves from the bundles. In other words, pull out from the work you've already done, just lay it on the ground so she can pick it up. I mean, he's really providing for her over and above. In fact, that ephah of barley is probably 30 pounds of barley that she gained in that first day. So he provides for her with protection. He provides for her with um, provision, but he also provides for her praise. Do you notice what he says when he says these words, <clears throat> he says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been told to me, how you left 
father, mother, your native land, and come to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. I mean, just a sidebar for a minute. I, I think when you hear a man praise a woman like this, it, it reminds me of the value that we as a community gain as we're able to express what we see of God's grace in one another's lives. I mean, we do not do this enough. We struggle with finding grace in another's life and then giving word to it. I don't know if we if we're embarrassed or if we're afraid they're not going to say anything for us, we're too insecure to highlight what we see in someone's life. Maybe it's threatening to us. But when a man praises a woman, or really a man praises a man or a woman, just, just to give word, think about that in your fellowship. What do you spy out in God's grace in the life of another person? It is the grace of God. And to not give word to it is really in a way to deny the worship of God. It's his grace. So let me encourage you, be mindful, be intentional, particularly in marriages and those who aren't married in your close relationships. Is there a regular practice of giving thanks to God in the hearing of the person of the grace that you see in their life? We do this in our home. It's become regular practice, and I'll tell you, it's a wonderful way of worshiping God. So so here you have Boaz, and you just see him as a a, a man modeling divine kindness to her. Now, if you were to kind of roll back in your history, can you name two or three people that have been really kind to you, that have expressed a kindness and and how did it make you feel when they acted toward you with such kindness? I mean, I mean, did it did your soul kind of swell up with joy? And, and did you see it as coming from God, or was it just the person's being nice? And if you're a Christian here, if you were to ask three friends, "Am I a kind person? Do you see kindness in me?" What would they say? Or if you go back in the past two weeks of your life and and you look at the way you've handled your family or your business partners or associates, would they say that you're kind? It's really, you know, I've been mulling over the question. I asked Carol, and uh, I don't know that someone would say you're kind. They might say, well, you're trying to be a good leader, trying to walk with integrity. But, But I've been kind of rolling around with this one a bit because... Remember, kindness isn't just a a puffy softness. That's not what kindness is. Kindness is a covenant loyalty. Kindness is a a willingness to sacrifice without expectation of return. Would you be defined that way? And do you practice acts of kindness to others? So can you even now in your mind, can you think of two people that need kindness? Not just a financial help, but perhaps relational engagement. They're lonely. They're inhibited. They don't, they're not the kind of the bold and brash and they come right, they kind of sit back and, and you, you may get tired of that. You know, well, why can't they come to me? Why do I always have to go to them? Well, maybe they're just inhibited. Maybe them coming to you is like pushing a thousand pounds through sand. You know, can you act with kindness relationally or spiritually? 
trying to discern, and how can I, you know, we did this class on discipleship, and the easiest definition is just do something for the spiritual good of another person. You know, have you, can you spy out two people and move in that way? You know, in Galatians chapter 5, of course, the fruit of the Spirit is just that, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and, and kindness. It's kindness. One author said, to put on kindness is to clothe ourselves with the character of God. That's what I'm calling you to do. Boaz walked with kindness. So you have this story of Ruth, who has a stellar character, and you have Boaz, who just is, is phenomenal at demonstrating kindness to her. Now, I think in any good story that's kind of developing, you, you see there's no hint right now of any sort of romance. But the seeds are there. I mean, all the material is there. Um, there's still two months of harvest. Harvest went from mid-April to mid-June. And barley first and then wheat following. But you can begin to see what's developing in this story. So I'm going to leave it there for now because next week we're going to move more into that. But let me draw back to the vertical dimension. So that's the cultivation of a relationship. A woman of stellar character and a man providing, protecting, and praising her. It's a good picture. Anyone who is married or who is about to be married, just use that as a model. Use it as a model. And hold yourself to it. And ask each other, how am I doing on this? Can you pray for me where I'm weak and broken in this area? Okay, so let's look at now how God models this kindness. Not models, actually, but, but produces, brings this kindness to us. I want us to see how God, how Boaz is simply a picture of what God does on a regular basis for you. So I want you going vertical with me now. I want you to think on God. And the first thing I want you to see, because I want you to spy out how God's lurking in the pages here. You don't see a lot of God. This book is like Esther in many ways. Esther is a unique book of the Bible that doesn't even mention the name of God one time. God's all over the book, but it's not there in kind of a flash-bang way. Same thing here. God's kind of lurking in the shadows with grace, and I want you to see his presence in this book. The first thing we see, I think, is that God will express his kindness to you through very ordinary means, through very ordinary means. What I mean by this is when you look at, let's say, back in verse 3, it says that Ruth set out and went to glean in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, the writer wants us to see this like it's an accident, like, huh, what a stroke of luck that is. Look at me, just gleaning along, and there's old Boaz. It, it, it's, it's meant to kind of be told as a way of showing that God's sovereignty is played out through very ordinary means. We love the flash, we love the bang, we love the dramatic, we love the spectacular, but not so here. In this book, you see no angelic visitation, you hear no thundering pronouncements of a prophet, you see no cosmological change, you just have her just gleaning the field and walking along, and boom, she meets the man of God. You know, this is the way God does things. There is, you know, this world is not operating on some sort of blind way, like things are just happening. God is doing a thousand things in the ordinary stuff of the day. And we have to be aware and spy that out and look for that. 
I mean, many of you are old enough to look back at your life and you see those events that really didn't have major significance until they were combined with other events. And then you see the hand of God moving these things into place. I mean, do you see, do you look for God's grace and kindness in the ordinary events of the day? Or do you think, yeah, we went to the prayer meeting, nothing happened? But you may have had a conversation with somebody that seemed kind of ordinary, but for that person it was really instrumental. And, and do you look for God, do you look for his kindness when you lose a job? Or do you look for God's kindness when you lose your health or have parenting struggles or marital struggles? Remember, God's kindness is always moving. When Carol and I went into missions, and the first couple of weeks we were there, we were in leader training, and I remember, um, remember I checked the box, which set off, if you will, kind of a firestorm of life changing in a different direction. Well, we were there, and everybody had these dramatic testimonies of how God called them into missions. And this person heard from God, and I think someone saw God. There's all kinds of stuff happening to get them there. And then it came our turn, and uh, it was kind of like, well, you know, we just felt like we should do it. I mean, you know, God did these things and changed our hearts and... Yeah, we just think he's calling us to do it. It was so, it was like, ah. Uh, you could feel the whole crowd, ah, oh, gee. Next, you know, it's like, thinking what, and I remember Carol feeling kind of, at least initially, we felt a little awkward that we didn't have the, the bang to bring to what God had done in our lives. It was very ordinary, but it was very real. And so just remember, God does tremendous things displaying kindness and mercy, sovereignly guiding through ordinary means. You know, in Proverbs 16, it says, man makes a plan, but God guides a step. Man casts the die, God determines the outcome. So he works through ordinary... So let's be wise to that. Let's not just go for and look for the flashbang kind of things in life, but just the ordinary stuff. Secondly, you see that God's kindness is displayed to us in lavishness. I want us to think about God as not a stingy old man, but a lavish, generous king. Look at the gleaning that was done. 30 pounds of barley. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that would be a seemingly impossible task for one who gleans outside of the grace of God. You could not glean that much in a day. Can you imagine how happy Naomi was? I mean, here's Ruth. Ruth must have been a a bit of a strong woman carrying a 30-pound bag of barley, throwing, it's like a dog food-sized bag, dropping it on the ground and saying, this is what the Lord's provided for us. I mean, the generosity of God. the kind of, I think what God's doing is he's vindicating himself with Naomi. Because Naomi said, I left full and I came back empty. Well, he's starting to fill her up. He, and this is just the beginning. The food is just the beginning of how he's going to fill and restore and rebuild Naomi's bitterness into blessedness. So there, there is a, there's a generosity to God. Now, we're a type of people that I think can often start receiving things, and that then becomes the new normal. And when we don't get it, we're resentful. We think, well, what have you given for me? What have you given to me lately, God? And oftentimes, we, we assess the generosity of God based upon what we think we should be getting and what we haven't got of what we thought we should get, and then we hold God somehow as, well, I don't know if you give me that. And, and we, we forget his generosity. And, and, and the way we 
the way that, for the Christian at least, returns to understand the generosity of God is we have to look to the Savior. We have to look to God's kindness expressed to us in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of it very clearly. He says, when you were dead in your trespasses. So every single person in this room, if you're a Christian, you're not, this is your starting point. You were dead. Puts us all on the same page. We're dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Just a, a quick little parenthesis as to this is what brought you from death. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a mind bender. So that in the coming ages, this is important. This is the purpose of the gospel, at least one of them. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is a coming age by which the gospel is going to be the object which is going to show his kindness to be immeasurable. There is no way you will measure his great kindness to you in saving you. God's lavish with kindness. Not only is he feeding us and giving us life and breath, but he's giving us the sun. So folks, when we look at our lives and we begin to grow cold to God as generous and lavish in the way he cares for us, look to the sun. Look to Jesus Christ. You are dead, every single one of you. And if you're a Christian here, you've been made alive because he's kind. And his kindness knows no end. And you'll never see it more deeply and more beautifully and more powerfully in what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. This is why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Every day we get up in the morning. I have immeasurable riches of which in the coming ages I'll never be able to exhaust because of what he has done for me. That will cast a different light on my day, regardless of what happens. So even if I don't get some, I don't get the job, or I don't get the girl, or I don't get the raise, or I don't get whatever I need, I don't get made healthy today, I've been sick for a week, look at the immeasurable kindness. So let's be overwhelmed with the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, the third thing God shows us about his kindness is that it's for the nations. It's not for North America. It's not for the Western Christian. It's for the nations. Look at Ruth. Why did God choose Ruth, a Moabite? Remember what you think of Moabite? You think of wicked sinner. You think of them as a people, the Moabites. They're to the east of Israel. Israel's going through the land I shared with last week. They tried to hire Balaam to curse him. You know what they did later? Balaam couldn't curse him because God prevented him. They thought, okay. So they sent women among the Israelite men, led them into sexual sin. God brought judgment, took 24,000 men because of their sexual immorality. So you think Moabite, you think that's what they did to us. They sowed seeds that brought God's destruction on us. They hated the Moabites. And God uses a hated Moabite. In fact, when you read through chapter 2, count up how many times. She's not Ruth. She's Ruth the Moabite. Why does the author keep stating that she's Tom the Mercer? I mean, Ruth the Moabite. They're letting us know. Let me make it clear to you. She's not Jewish. She's not of the promised people. She's not of the people of God. She's a foreigner. She's a sinner. She's a monster. She comes from those wicked people to our east. And yet God chose her to bless Israel and, as we're going to find, to bless the world. 
mean, God is for reaching out to the sinner and the broken and the disenfranchised, the ones that we avoid. You know, if you were to take this, just that thought alone, and you look at our church, how do we, let's apply it to us right here, as a church, as a corporate body, would we be known as kind to the foreigner? Would we be known as kind to the widow? Would we be known as kind to those that just don't seem to fit? Would we be known as gracious to them? I mean, do we take care? You know, it really kind of even speaks to the immigration discussion we're having as a nation. Now, I realize it's a very complicated situation, but this speaks to it in some measure. It speaks to how do we handle people. You know, we have this, I think... um, Nick shared last week about the changing nature of our refugee ministry that was once a Korean ministry, and now it's being moved over there to the apartments off of uh, Sandy Forks. Um, and, and all the ethnicities that are there, Afghanis, Syrians. I mean, there are, I don't know how many, 10, 15 ethnicities. I don't know, there's more than a dozen, I believe. And, and, and to be kind to them, by teaching them English, by, by providing food for them. Or for, how can we do that? I mean, I mean, that's a question that the text is asking us. How can we be known as kind? Why? Well, the, second, the fourth point I want to make is why, that God's kindness is expressed through human agency. It's expressed, so divine kindness is expressed through us. I mean, notice Naomi, when she sees the grain, she's flabbergasted. She says, blessed is he in whom you found favor. Wow, we ran into a treasure trove here, right? And so so in this dialogue with Naomi and Ruth, Ruth comes back, drops the grain on the ground, and Naomi's going crazy. Who'd you find favor with? Well, Naomi is about to have her jaw hit the floor. Because Ruth says, and Ruth doesn't know. Remember now, Ruth is kind of, they're both kind of running into the scene at the same time. Ruth goes, well, it was a man named Boaz. Boaz? Boaz? Can you just hear her scream? Boaz a relative. He's our redeemer. You know, so, so boom, Naomi's bulb blasts. That's, that's our redeemer. That's our, and all of a sudden now, don't you see the light coming up over the horizon? And then now, now Ruth's jaw hit the floor because she knew Boaz, but she didn't know he was a redeemer. And now they're putting the pieces together. And that's why you hear Naomi. And you see, I'm so thankful, you see Naomi's heart moving in this passage from bitterness to blessedness. Here's what she says. She says, may he be blessed by the Lord. Right? She's thankful for Boaz. Boaz has been an agent of God's kindness. But then she says, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or dead. Whose kindness are we talking about? Is it Boaz or is it God's? Well, it must be God because Boaz hadn't had any dealing with them before. And so her heart's getting warmed back up to God. She's saying God's hand is for her. That in his sovereign purposes, which seem so dark and difficult, now we're bringing her to a place of abundant sunshine. That God has been good to us. That's huge. I mean, she sees that because God's kindness has come through Boaz. So do you see the principle here? That that when we express kindness to one another, we are actually being agents of God's kindness, that we're displaying God's kindness to people. 
We just think, oh, I just wanted to help somebody. No, no, no. Our kindness being exhibited to others is how they see God as good. How they see. I mean, this is why in Ephesians 3, we hear that the church is to display the manifold wisdom of God. Let me tell you, God can save people by writing across the sky or a hand writing on the wall. But fundamentally, he saves people through us right here. He saves them through our acts of kindness to people, particularly our sacrifice, our our encouragement, our declaration of the hope that we have in this gospel. This is how God saves people. He is chosen for his own purposes and for our ultimate pleasure to work through us to save people. So when you think about have you shared kindness, when I say, what acts of kindness have you done in the past few days? This is really big. This isn't simply I've got to be nicer to people. No, you are being, a, you're being the mask of God. You're being the voice of God. You really are. You know, we often hear I'm God's hands and feet, and sometimes I think that's kind of corny. But the reality of it is, this is how it comes. So God shows us kindness through human agency. So, so I guess logically, if we don't, then God's kindness isn't displayed very well. Okay, the last thing I want to say about God's kindness is that it is expressed through a redeemer. And I'm just going to open the can today. We'll look into it more next week. But you notice that she says he is a relative and a redeemer. <clears throat> so in Israel, here's the issue. God wanted to prevent endless cycles of poverty. So if a family were to become destitute, right? They maybe had to, maybe they invested themselves poorly or they wasted their money, whatever, and they sell themselves into slavery or they sell their land, that God had a provision in the law that someone within the clan with financial wherewithal would go and he would redeem the people. He would buy them out of slavery that they had sold themselves into to get out of debt. He would buy them and he would buy their property and he would give it back to them so that, so that the property would stay in the family, they would be drawn out of poverty, and you wouldn't have children in poverty producing children in poverty. You wouldn't have this endless cycle. So that's the idea of a redeemer. You're buying somebody back. So when she said he's a redeemer, Naomi's thinking he can redeem us. Now, he hasn't redeemed them yet. He's only provided food for them. But you know in their mind, they're thinking it. Why does the chapter end with, and she stayed with her mother-in-law? They're thinking, he's providing for us, he's protecting us. Will he redeem us? Will he move, not just in buying us back from slavery, but part of that redeemer rule was that you would even marry the woman and bring up an offspring in the name of the deceased to carry on the line, the name in the line of Israel. And that's what we're waiting for. So chapter 2 kind of leaves us this way. Is he going to do it? We don't know. We've got to read the next chapter to find out. But what I want you to see about Boaz is Boaz is coming in as God, as it were, to redeem. But Boaz is only a type of redeemer. In other words, you know, we as New Testament Christians are beginning now to see down the line that he is a picture of a redeemer that is to come, that will deliver us. There is yet a, deli- a, yet a redeemer to come. And we see him, interestingly, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Boaz is in the lineage of Jesus. 
In other words, Boaz is a type of Christ pointing to a redeemer to come. I, I want to explain it this way. Remember, if you're over 45, you remember the, the um, Kodiak, Kodak Instamatic camera. I love those things. Okay, it was a, it, it's going to be like a Smithsonian piece to those of you who are under 30. But you press a button and out comes the picture. And it was really cool because the picture would be blurry and you'd have it in your hand. And you had to kind of, you couldn't touch it. If you touch it, you'd ruin it. You had to just kind of move it real slow in the air. And then like within 30 seconds, you begin to see things form. And then within a minute, and then two, I don't know how many minutes it was. It felt like a day, but maybe it was three minutes and, and everything became clear. It, it was like this development of this picture right before your eyes. That's what we're having here. That this redeemer that Boaz is displaying in human form is going to come from God. This is the story of the gospel. That God's going to send Christ to redeem us. So, when, so if I were to ask you, how, would you describe God as kind? I mean, would you really? In your top three descriptions of God, would you say he's kind? Because God's kindness is best displayed in this Redeemer coming. This is exactly Paul's point when he wrote to the letter to Titus. He said this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, so he's almost making kindness incarnate. Christ is God's kindness in the flesh. If you ever wanted to see... So we are to be displaying God's kindness in this world? Absolutely. But if you want to see a picture of his kindness, it's Christ and Christ alone. He says this, when our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works we had done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, so that's, the, that's the, what we're moving to in chapter 3. Now, if you're not a Christian, or if you're considering what does it mean to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian is to say, I need a Redeemer, and I need more than food. I need more than marriage, which is what Boaz is going to demonstrate. I need more than that. I need, I need a reconciled relationship with a God that I've lived at odds with. I, I need to be forgiven. I need to be reconciled. I need to have the alienation removed. I, I need to know that I'm his son and that he is my father. That's what it means. To, and, and by faith, we believe in this redeemer who has come to restore. Now, for the Christian here, I, I, I want you thinking, if, if you know Christ to be your redeemer, then you're asking yourself, am I looking for his kindness in the ordinary things in life? Am I seeing him as lavish with his kindness to me in the gospel? Am I being kind to the nations? Am I being kind to those in my own midst? You don't need to go to Bangladesh. Just start here. Am I being being an agency of God's kindness to people? And and do I see God's kindness in Christ, my Redeemer? So let's just take a minute now and, and speak with God on this issue. Perhaps it'll lead you in confession or perhaps even thanksgiving for what God's done. And uh, we'll just, we'll pray silently here and and Ray will uh, close us in just a minute. Thank you.